Well, welcome to uh, our next podcast, and this is the second of our two-part uh, Meet the Podcasters session, and uh, sitting opposite me is Bill Winter, and I've known Bill for I don't know how many years now, but um, he uh, he's always inspired me with uh, how he's operated, and, the, and I'm fascinated about the various businesses that he's involved in. So welcome, Bill. Thank you, Mark. It's really great to be here, and... Uh we haven't scripted any of this, or nor do we script any of our podcasts, so I'm eagerly waiting for your questions. So so let's start, Bill. Where were you born? Well, in a place, I guess, that not many people uh, have been to, and that's Yarrawonga on the Murray River. Excellent. Yeah. Beautiful little town. It is, and uh, I think I was probably known as the terror of Yarrawonga. <laughs> My father was, he owned a pub. Well, one of the two pubs in those days and uh, he was forced to go up there when the Second World War broke out because he had a business making batteries in Australia, his own business, and all his materials came from Germany. So you can imagine that just shut down and he was out on his bare backside again. And uh, a friend lent him some money and he went up to uh, Yarrawonga and opened a pub and I started primary school up there and the local little... Catholic primary school, I vaguely remember it uh, because the rest of, I was one of five siblings and the rest, my three elder sisters were all shoved off to boarding school in Melbourne. Uh, so I didn't see a lot of them. He, he moved from, we moved from Yarrawonga to a farm outside Cobram and it was a mixed farm and uh, I was still very young of course, I have a few memories one of which I remember one day throwing a rock at a beehive and suddenly my head was covered in bees and I think I was in a bit of trouble at that stage. <laughs> yeah. So uh, one of the photos I, 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 uh, I've seen over the years is a picture of you and I think one of your siblings sitting on the steps of a soft drink factory. So how did, how did that arise? How did you get into that? All right, from the farm which is outside Cobram, uh, he, my father moved to Geelong and like a, so it was a typical family business and he started a company called TV Drinks and TV spelt T-double-E-V-double-E -E. the reason he started that in the early 1950s was he knew that television was coming to Australia and that's where he got the name from and so he built that up and in fact became a very successful business doing very well in Melbourne and he sold that and went to the Gold Coast to retire, hated retirement, came back to Geelong. The people, the large company that bought his business didn't realise he still owned a soft drink factory full of machinery in Geelong. And he started up a company called Noddy Soft Drinks, which that, and that was our entry into soft drinks. And that photo you're referring to was later on um, in my late 20s when I started my own soft drink company in Melbourne. And my kids used to come out at lunchtime and would sit on the crates and have lunch together as the little tackers. It's it's a it's a good story and, and Noddy, uh, it's still remembered. It's it's interesting. Every now and then, I notice you post up on Facebook an old picture of Noddy soft drinks or a label, and you get a great reaction. It's a great example of residual brand um, recognition, and there's been a few of those around regional towns. But you know, a uh, long time ago, of course. Every town had a butcher, baker, um, undertaker, and I say soft drink maker. Yeah, that's true. I still remember uh, soft drinks being delivered to uh, my home as a kid. So, um, 
So what then led you from Noddy's? Where you sold Noddy's up and you went to work for? Yeah, well, I, the one I the business I started and my brother joined me uh, was in Melbourne, and we got to a point, you know, as most family business do and mo- businesses of our size, we built it up into a sizable company, a lot of employees in the summertime working seven days a week. And we knew that we had to expand. And the issue was we didn't have the capital to expand. We had our houses mortgaged. We had our kids mortgaged. We had our wives mortgaged. We had every, And we just we sat down and we made a calculated decision. The only thing we could do was to actually sell the business because we couldn't finance it. Now, today, of course, you go to an equity, equity finance deal and, and off and running. So... As a result of selling that, I was contracted to a public company that owned uh, three or four food type of type businesses, and one was a pet food company, and I was contracted for two years to become their sales and marketing director. And then once that contract was up, um, I went and I was offered a job in Cadbury Schweppes because of my soft drink background, and I became and I became the chief operating officer of couple of their subsidiaries and i and i know from um those roles bill that uh, in some of the times that we've chatted that got you to travel a fair bit around the world where where's some of the interesting places you've been to well i might go back to actually before i uh, started all that when i um left school i went to rmit to do business studies and halfway through the first year um my father had bought plant equipment out of England and the managing director was at the dinner table one night and he said, how would you like to come to England and join our internship program? So, if he, you know, that was an incentive and just as an aside, uh, I, that was the era of the Vietnam War and I wasn't allowed to have a passport. So, uh, and you weren't allowed to have a passport until your marble came out of the bar- barrel and you knew then if you could get a passport Touchwood, my birth date didn't come out, got my passport off to England for two and a half years, working around the UK in uh, engineering companies, making uh, brewery machinery, working in a laboratory that made essences and flavours, and in between time, hitchhiking around Europe, in between those trying to earn some more money, working in places like Harrods, and just doing the, the general things that you know Australian young Australians did in those days. And once I got the business, I was a great believer in that you must travel, you must go to trade shows. So I was a trade show fanatic uh, and, and I was always looking for the latest trend, always looking for the latest in packaging. So we took off uh, and obviously during school holidays was the prime time to take off uh, and we went to uh, trade shows all over the world, uh, mainly in the beverage and food industry and I've uh, one of the other uh, really interesting programs I had was when I was working for the pet food company, being the sales and marketing manager, we decided we'd open up the Asian market. So every month for uh, nearly a year, I would go to Japan uh, and talking to the big trading houses up there. And and because of the capacity in Australia to make pet food with you know some with meat, if you'd call it meat. I guess it was awful in reality. And that's what took me to Japan all the time. And uh, any good memories of Japan? I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And, of course, it was uh, 
I was in Japan the day the stock exchange crashed. Uh, I'll never forget that and because they were absolutely booming. But the scenery in Japan, we'd always take an opportunity to get out and see things. And the people were so friendly. The people were, uh, they loved, loved to drink, I can tell you that much. Um, but they were just so friendly. And there's the, the culture of Japan is unbelievable. It's very disciplined. And you can have a love-hate relationship with it. But you know, th- you know the, the thrill in those days of the bullet train and all those, those things, it was just a different experience. So where did you go to from Cadbury Sweeps? What was your next step? Well, Cadbury Sweeps, um, I actually walked out of Cadbury Sweeps the day I paid my last school fee. <laughs> I wasn't built for corporate, to be quite honest. But So uh, I had an opportunity to do some work in franchising because I'd franchised one of the divisions of Cadbury Sweeps when I was there. So I did some business consulting, but I was always keen to do business consulting. And one of the key lessons I learned when I went to corporate, and particularly at, at Cadbury Swips, was to, uh, I guess, the fact that if, if I had the disciplines and policies and procedures uh, and some of the corporate financial discipline in my own business, I would have been a lot better off. So I became passionate about... I've got to get out there because so many family businesses don't have this. And what can I add back to it? And in between that, I had a couple of roles as interim CEOs. And one of the the roles was with uh, RACV and NRA Insurance. They had a large smash repair business uh, in Melbourne that was losing money with 130 trades and uh, doing a power of work. But um, they had to jettison it. It wasn't a core business for them. So over two years, my role was to build that up and sell it profitably, which I did. And that led to a couple of other um, interim CEO roles, a couple in Geelong and another another one that was in Sydney. But uh, from my cabbie trips, I had enough of travel. I wasn't going to do that again. Yeah. Uh, what, what's, um, what's one of the learnings from being an interim CEO? What makes it enjoyable? Well, I guess um, you can be bold because you're only <laughs> interim. So you can, uh, within reason, you can take some risks that a, somebody that's a full-time employee who's in the corp- on the corporate ladder that can't afford to do. And I always made sure that within my contract, given that I sought private approval, of course, that I was able to sort of break the corporate mould. And the, the best thing that I guess I did uh, in hindsight and the thing that enjoyed me most was the way I re- rearranged the leadership teams and I, and I developed leadership teams and I was probably in that particular business the first one to bring in, uh, I guess, flexible teams and I used to call them tiger teams where I would take an apprentice, senior manager, tradesman off the floor, somebody out of head office, put them into, into uh, the, the smash repair business, for instance, and give them a problem to solve, and they'd come back and solve the problem. Now, that's replicated in most business today. A lot of it's called, you know, goes under the, the I guess, the name of agile teams and, they, and the sprint teams and all the rest of it that you hear about today. But that gave me the greatest thrill, and I guess from an ego point of view, uh, since I left those, uh, or upon leaving, 
was the the recognition and the letters of appreciation of people who who said to me, if it wasn't for you, I wouldn't have got this far and now I can move on to a better job. Fantastic. Good story. Yeah. So who was your first client when you started business mentoring? Um, I... Well, it was in the franchising industry, and it was one of the hydraulic hose companies. I don't want to name them at this stage. <laughs> uh, and it was a case of, and he was the franchisor. And it, it, it taught me that the importance of a franchisor franchisee relationship, because there wasn't one. And when I, I used to go out with the guys on the trucks all the time. And all I got were, were whinges about head office. And so the greatest lesson was is that you've got to, tr- in a business relationship, whether it's clients or whether it's your staff, and in this case it's franchisees, that it's all about communication and in particular it's all about honesty. And that, interesting enough, led me on to becoming a dispute mediator for the Franchise Code of Conduct, for, which comes under the auspices of the ACCC. And I saw again there in the disputes that came before me, every, every one of them was about a lack of communication. So but go, that um, hydraulic hose company was a real eye-opener for me. So what led you into company director roles? Um, I guess by accident, really. Um, and I, would, I was advising a couple of um, family businesses and I've always been big on the issue that a a reasonably sized family business should have an advisory board. Uh, And there is, uh, I guess, and I'm still, the the first formal board where I became a director is Loverduck Proprietary Limited. And that's a very successful business, of course. And that was going through a transition of uh, the second, the next generation. It was started by a gentleman called Arthur Shoppy. And he called me in and I was invited to uh, help be the first formal board. They had a family-type board. So I became the non-family board member, and I'm still there 13 years later. But interestingly enough, um, Arthur died uh, a couple of weeks after I signed my board agreement, uh, and it was left with then with three siblings and myself to run the business. Uh, one of the siblings has since been bought out, and the other three of us, and we've been a three-person board on a very successful business, and that has led me to to be asked to go on other family boards, but I, will, I don't want to be a director. I will be an external advisor only. That's good. That's good, Bill. And with, with um, family boards and advising family businesses, I know um, you, you tell quite a good story and... and you can expand on it if you like about sitting there and saying to uh, the patriarch that's sitting at the end of the table or the matriarch in some instances and saying righto family they've just died how are you operating the business so tell us a bit about your thinking in this sort of stuff yes well that is also brought about by um i guess well experience i'll go back to my father again is that we um he had the successful company operating in geelong and in parallel, I had a similar business operating in Melbourne. And at that stage, my brother had joined me. And my father passed away. And, of course, the, he, he, we never had the discussion about what was going to happen. And his, the executive of his will was the state trustees. 
and that was a bit of a shock to us because none of us knew. And the state trustees came in and put his business up for tender. And my brother and I were a tenderer for the business, which incidentally held the trademark of one of the brand names we were using, and we lost the tender. And ever since that experience, I thought, if I can help businesses realise they've got to get their family affairs in order and they've got their, their, their will in, in order, um, yes, you know, that can be a great value to them. So I've run a couple of sessions with large family groups where I've asked the, the, uh, the owner, generally the, the, the male, the older male, uh, who's, who's got the control of most of it, to come to the meeting and sit in the corner and they, they all come in and uh, I say, right, there's your father over there. Unfortunately, I've got bad news. Uh, he died last night. <laughs> and they sort of look at me stupidly. Um, and I've got the whiteboard out at that stage, by the way. And then I say, okay, what happens today? Right, he's no longer here. What happens? And to my shock, the first time I ran this exercise, no one could answer the question. So that's how I got in into that. And only recently, they might be listening, I've asked two family-owned businesses, have you got a will? And both have said no. And I'm a bit shocked about that. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting when, especially when you, you step into a successful family business, you think they've got all everything ticked and crossed and that's not necessarily the case. So it, that's your experience is, is, is a good part of that. Now, Bill, I also know you've spent a number of years with the Australian Irish Chamber of Commerce. So again, how did you get into that and what does that entail? Well, I got into that because... I was, I'd met a, um, a, who's now a very good friend, of course, um, Fergal Coleman. I think Fergal, his name is really Fergal O. Coleman. Um, but he was the president or on the board of the Irish Australian Chamber of Commerce and I got interested in it and because of that, you know, it was a, a really up-and-coming chamber at that point in time. And I, um, I put a proposal up to the Chamber Board to start a mentoring process, um, which uh, got off the ground, and then also to start a roundtable concept. And the roundtable concept was I would chair a group of 10 to 12 Irish expat, young Irish expats who were all, who had all come out here, basically all come out of university, uh, we're doing the backpacking trip, but and many of whom got jobs here in Australia and working for corporates. So that was a monthly confidential in-house forum that I chaired for a, a couple of years, and that got that program off the ground. Uh, and uh, then uh, I went back with another proposal. Let's have some business awards, and uh, very. And with the help, you know, the uh, the chair and the CEO, of course, uh, got on board with that, and the chamber ran it, and that became another successful arm of the Irish Australian Chamber, of which I'm very proud to say that I'm now an honorary life member. Oh, excellent! That's, that was my Irish Chamber, uh, and the pedigree is my. I think it was my great great grandfather. Came from Limerick. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So there's the Irish connection. Yeah. So you're also uh, a member of other chambers of, of commerce or, or what are they? Well, right now, yes. Uh, the 
Apollo Bay Chamber of Commerce, and that came out because I've been mentoring the chair of the Apollo Bay, and during, obviously, that was just before pre-COVID, and they and COVID has caused lots of issues for Chamber of Commerce, but that was about getting helping the chair get the chamber back on track, and by the looks of it now, you know that's well and truly happened. I'm also on the Ballarat Chamber of Commerce, and one of the reasons I joined that was to. Um, I guess have a presence in Ballarat, particularly because Lover Duck had just built a new $30 million facility there. And as you know, I've been involved with the Geelong Chamber of Commerce for quite a while. And once again, um, prompted the round table programs, uh, which there are two or I think two or three. Two. Two as running successfully, which are monthly meetings chaired by yourself and Gillian Costa. Um, which has been successful where chamber members can come together and discuss their issues in a trusted format. And um, the and also the mentoring program. Uh, that's another thing I've got involved in and I was the chair of the selection committee for the chairs of that program. And I guess to wrap up the John Chamber, uh, took on the role as the temporary CEO for a while there in between permanent CEOs. And only yesterday I was spent a day on the judging panel for the Geelong Business Awards. So that's a nice little segue into, uh, as a judge of the Geelong Business Awards, which is very successful, uh, successfully run by the Geelong Chamber of Commerce, what are some of the businesses that you're seeing? What are, what are some of the things that have surprised you in this judging over the years? Well, Geelong's full of best-kept secrets. And you've heard me use that expression before, and it really is. And it's such a diverse range from sole traders, you know, just starting out uh, to established businesses. Uh, and I guess they've all got the same, similar issues. Uh, and this year's list of entries, which I believe is 70 odd around, around that mark, uh, they range from uh, every segment of, the, of industry. That's really, there's, there's no one dominant one segment. And there are some standouts, and there are people, uh, sole traders. They go from, as I say, la- a large educational facility down to a just a, a, a recent startup as a sole trader. Um, and they're, they're all, it's interesting, when you read through the submissions, which generally is quite daunting for some of them to fill out. Um, they all have similar, as I said, they all have similar issues. They're all coming out of COVID. They're all facing uh, a future which is still somewhat un- unknown, but they've all taken a risk. That's the key issue. That, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So, again, talking about good sedgeways, over your career, the things you've done, you've taken risks. What What is the learning you've got? If you're, if you're advising somebody who's starting out or got their first business what's your learnings about how to take their career and is it just jumping in and taking risks or have you got a plan well some take a risk and jump in and are very successful but generally you'll find that's in the in the it industry these days but it's seek advice that's one and that's the thing that i didn't have when i had my own business i often reflect and say what if i had people of what if I had an advisory board what if I had a mentor you know we didn't have those and it's every time I come across somebody that's struggling I say well who are you seeking advice from you know, it's 
and you can't do it on your own. And they try and do it on their own, or a, and in particular when a couple, husband and wife team or, or uh, a partnership, try and do it on their own, uh, they can't see the wood for the trees. And it's the number one thing every time, go and seek some independent advice. By that, I don't mean your accountant or your solicitor. I mean somebody totally unrelated to your business. Excellent advice, Bill. And finally, um, you've got your grandkids. So they're your distraction. Grandkids or terrace. Or terrace, enjoyment. <laughs> it's, well, it's a, it's a bit like a lot of families. We've got two of them in Melbourne and you don't really see them, right? And which I guess that's the way it is. You know, it could be overseas, they could be anywhere. We've got two close by and there's the other aspect as happened yesterday, Joe, uh, get the text message. Can Dad, can you pick up the kids at 3.30? I'm stuck at work. Um, but you do it because, not because you have to, because you want to. And because as any grandparent would know, um, you start thinking about reflecting on what you did when you were a parent and how much time, you're probably spending more time with grandkids than you did with your own kids. And that's a... That's another lesson to learn. Yeah. It certainly is, Bill. So, Bill, thank you. It's been uh, very enjoyable. And uh, I hope uh, for those that are listening to us that they too have learned a little bit more about uh, the, the life of Bill Winter. So thank you, Bill. Thank you, Mark. And I look forward to our next podcast. <laughs>